think we're all called to live out our faith in action. I think we're all called to live to live the questions in a deep way. I think there is an everyday activism, and I think whether it's resisting um, the commodification of of whatever, or if it just is turning off the television and and resisting the 24-hour news cycle, you know, disengaging from capitalism and productivity. I am trying to be real transparent and honest about like, look, this shit is going to kill you. And if we are serious about the work of following the ways of Jesus, and if we are serious about the work of engaging hospitality, and if we are serious about the work of building a togetherness and community and fortifying our human relations, uh, then we have to resist the dominant forms of living. You're listening to the Theo Poetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa. Robin is a queer activist, Latinx scholar, and public theologian working for collective liberation. In today's episode, entitled A Poetics of Precarity, Robin and I discuss how to find truth, beauty, and goodness in the common life amidst the instability of our times. We also talk about resisting the urge toward commoditization and their bridging work of radical listening and action. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. When we were communicating uh, about a potential topic, you had said something around a poetics of precarity. Yeah. Tell me more about, about that interest and where you're heading with that. Yeah, I, so I've been thinking about three particular things recently. Um, philosophically, they are called the three transcendentals, and they sort of show up in Thomas Aquinas's work in his recovery of Aristotle. Um, and the three, the three things or the three transcendentals are called truth, beauty, and goodness. And those three things have gotten me to think about precarity, um, living in our, living in our time, living in what I'm calling the tyranny of the now. And so when I was thinking about, you know, my vocation as a theologian and the work that I do in theology and ethics, I began to think about those three things relative to, or how might they, or how might those three things in this age really point to a poetics of precarity. And what I mean by that is, um, I think this particular moment is exposing the precarious life that we all live. Um, From fighting white supremacy to fighting economic supremacy and the globalized network of capitalism, it really sort of exposes, I think, precarity for us all. Mm. And as you, as you diagnose our time, uh, those three transcendentals are at least migrating in terms of how we're defining them these days. So when you talk about such, you know, such transcendent notions as truth, beauty, and goodness, where do you locate them in your own ethics? And where, where do you see them um, in terms of where our society is at today? Yeah, I mean, so I think you use a good term there, the migration of those three transcendentals. And I wish there was a, I wish there was a different term than transcendentals. Right. Um, 
because I'm, I'm primarily interested in the local and I'm primarily interested in our shared common life and the quality of our life. And I think that those three things, truth, beauty, and goodness, um, there is a migration of them. And also um, they shape us in particular ways. And so I think about, I think about the notion of how, how certainty or how our orientation to certainty relative to truth has either diminished or at least is destabilized in this moment. I think for a lot of us, we don't know what to believe. Um, and not knowing what to believe is also, is also indicative of the fact that we no longer know how to believe in sustainable ways. Um, from belief in our institutional churches uh, to belief in our school systems, uh, to belief in our government, um, and and the connection the connection to goodness to that is, you know, the value of our truth claims, um, and the relationship of the way goodness shows up. I think is also certainly minimized um, and destabilized in this moment. You know, I think about really the the ongoing state-sponsored execution of black and brown bodies and that we are actually as a society making a value judgment on what bodies count and whose bodies count. Right. Um, and that is connected to a particular truth claim. So, mm. and then, you know, certainly the role of beauty um, in this world. Um, I think the old adage is uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder and I think what we know about uh, beauty and certainly we can talk about beauty standards and the ways in which um, what counts as pretty and beautiful um, really it, it acquiesces to a particular white norm. Right. So, you know, when I think, when I think about these three things and I think about how really unstable these three things are in this current moment, um, I have to go, I really have to go to the local, the hyper local and, and really look at the devastation of our communities and, and the fact that in our communities, you know, we don't really share a togetherness in community, which would be the sort of good things uh, about being in relationship with one another. Um, And I think that has that, the the assault on our local communities uh, from federal policies and certainly economic devastation has been the primary technology that has put truth, beauty, and goodness in motion and, and is, and is really a forced migration of these three things. Mm. So that, I, I think that's what I would say um, about the, the, it's complicated, right? I mean, I, I, would, I would say that about the, the relationship between those things and the, and the ethics piece. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, and there's a number of directions I, I would love to go with what you just brought up. One is the contrast between the transcendentals being these sort of other kind of higher values. So they're almost out of the realm of embodiment. And then this idea of the local being actually almost the opposite of that or, or the depth of those transcendentals in, a, in actual physicality. And so how do you see... Um, 
those those values that are so sometimes lofty and in a different realm coming down into the level of a kind of embodied uh, ethics or aesthetics um, that that can actually flesh them out. Yeah, I mean, I so I I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is uh, transcendence is dependent on immanence. <clears throat> They, they share a relationship. These are not separate things. And in many respects, you know, I think because I am indebted to Deleuze and I come to process thought through Deleuze, um, you know, we, I think we often think about transcend, transcendence and eminence as two poles. But I actually want to complicate that and suggest that both transcendence and eminence are middle points. They are part of an already existing fold of becoming. Um, and, and it's what I think enlivens the local. So yes, yes, the sort of meta realm of truth, beauty, and goodness philosophically is something that some might say is disembodied or metaphysical, but I want, I want to say that actually it shares a relationship with the local and it demands a particular attention and orientation to the local, um, because I think these three things make up our shared common life um, and, and exposes the quality of life we are able to have with one another. Right. So that being said, then, I mean, I actually agree with you as somebody who has also come to process thought and, you know, Whitehead's sort of conviction that beauty as one of those three is a, he says, beauty is a wider, more fundamental notion than truth. And so he sort of locates his, his value theory in, in the realm of, of the aesthetic. But what he means by that is that, that mutual imminence or that, that transcendence and, and sort of imminence being interwoven together. And so let's talk about beauty for, for a moment. I mean, yeah. I, I find, you know, in my conversations with other philosophers and process people too, that sometimes from the liberation perspective, there's there's a resistance to making beauty the, the wider, more fundamental notion because it seems to, again, be sort of disembodied. But actually, when, when you were bringing up that, the quote about the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, that was something that, that Whitehead was pushing back against and actually saying that he's trying to bring back a critical harmony to, to the beauty that is a part of the structure of things. And so so as you, as you think about that as an ethicist, do you hold to some kind of, you know, aesthetics in that way, or even a theopoetics uh, of beauty in, in a way that that has any sort of preeminence to, to the way we talk about truth and goodness? Or I mean, I, it's, it's a complicated question because uh, beauty, um, well, I want to say two things, and they, and they may sound oppositional but I promise they're related, that it's, it's hard, as a liberationist, it's, it's hard to find beauty in this moment of tyranny, right? So, um, so I want to say that. And I also want to say that there's something about beauty that can mobilize social change. Um, and, and I think the two are related in the sense that there is, and I don't mean fetishizing, right? Like, when I think about the the black the black mama's bailout that that has been happening here in the South, there is a particular beauty to that 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 is happening. Um, it's also a travesty that we have to bail out black mothers, right? So, 
I don't know that I, I don't know that I would prioritize beauty necessarily. I would want to hold them. I would want to hold them together. In a, in, in, and I would also want to hold to that the three of them are very precarious. Um, because I think what we can see in, and even in our climate change that, that, that our destruction of the earth is, is a particular, is a particular work of destruction that is destroying beauty in many respects. Right. So I, I think I would still hold to a theopoetics of precarity around this, um, that if we don't pay attention to the precar- the precarity with which with which we are all trying to survive um, i think that that we miss something i mean the other thing that i would say is that you know precarity we also have to think about what are the seeds of resilience and how are those seeds of resilience contributing to truth beauty and goodness and how are the seeds of resilience in the ways in which we fight white supremacy or, um, or, or anti-queer sentiment or um, anti-Semitism? You know, how are those seeds of resilience contributing to new folds of truth, beauty, and goodness? How does that fortify our orientation in the world? What does that do to the relationships that we have and how might that be um, in direct opposition to precarity? It doesn't erase precarity because we are still living in this sort of tyranny of the now. Um, but how might resilience come alongside precarity and fortify truth, beauty, and goodness in a way where where the pleats of the folds are strengthened um, and our our social practices are sustainable? Yeah, could you talk for a moment on how you define precarity in this methodology that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I define precarity in the sense of um, uh, a recognizable instability and and a, and a and an acknowledgement of a threatened the the sort of the body under threat or community under threat. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I often think about um, people who are immunocompromised. That is a precarious, you know, life, if you will, right? Um, the, the body is weakened. They have to be protected in terms of their environment. Uh, so that's how I think about precarity. Yeah, so there's almost a... A rootedness or a groundedness in how you conceive of it in actual lived situations, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Do you see, I mean, because when I hear the word precarious, I, I sort of think of that element of unknown or doubt. So do you see the the precarity of our times? Um, you know, you had mentioned belief earlier. Do you see a connection there to the, the, um, the difficulty of trying to ground an ethics or ground a a faith praxis in precarity, or is there a gift there too that that is opened up when we can acknowledge precarity? Well, I think it's both and. Um, I mean, I call myself a divine doubter, right? So I certainly precarity is about 
a deep uncertainty, a deep unknowing. Um, and, and it is about leaning into, I mean, this is the thing about sort of resting in the middle points and what becoming is, right? Becoming is more than just change, right? Uh, becoming is, is the folding of our time, the folding of our moment, uh, the, the deep radical unknowing of what emerges. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think uncertainty, uh, I think doubt uh, is, is both part of an ethics of precarity or poetics of precarity and also, and also a divine gift in many respects. Um, and I don't want to say that, that I also, I guess I also don't want to say that it's not without complications there for some people it may come as an element of surprise, like, oh my gosh, I'm doubting now. Um, I think that's just part of the process. Um, I also think precarity is on some level a resistance to just acquiescing or capitulating to the bullshit of our day. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. And, and I think that it has to take quite a life experience to get to that place where you can hold that tension together. And some of, the, some of the things we talk about in terms of theopoetics is the role that narrative plays in yeah. forming that, that perspective. And when we were out at the Mystic Soul Conference, you led uh, a time of reflection on, on you know, being introspective about who you are and coming back to your roots. So would you be willing to talk for a moment about your journey or your experience of becoming and how that has brought you to this place where you can hold divine and doubt and precarity, the precarity of our times? Um, as a theologian and ethicist today? I come out of a very traditional sort of Baptist upbringing and like to call myself a lifelong Baptist, even though I'm super ambivalent about religion and the institutional church and, and whatnot. But, you know, I, I went to Catholic school growing up. Uh, my I'm born to a Mexican woman out of this country and an Anglo father. And, you know, my after my parents divorced, my mother said to me, I think Catholic school is the best place for you. So I, you know, I sort of blame my mother for the fact that I've become a theologian. But that was the place where I began to hear story for the first time. It was the Christian story, and it was the story of the saints and the story of the tradition. And, you know, sort of fast forward, I moved to San Antonio to live with my father, began to attend public school, uh, fell in love with music, Went to college initially on a music scholarship, but then fell in love with philosophy and theology and began really for the first time to run up against what it meant for my body, which is a, a light-skinned Mexican body uh, with white passing privilege that is queer in orientation and look. I began for the first time to run up against my own narrative of a queer embodied person in being in classes with those who are cisgendered, white, male. And the, and the, the you know, the two stories butt up against each other. And so I, I began to, I mean, really sort of things began to unravel for me around how I had been socialized and, and my own understanding of myself, right? So the sort of internal narrative of who I understood my, myself to be and the ways in which that internal narrative was confronted by the dominant narrative of society, right? Um, 
I had two professors, two white male professors who said, you should go to graduate school. Of course, none of my family had ever been to graduate school. And I was first generation high school graduate, first generation college graduate. So they said, you should go to seminary. Oh, I had to look up what the term, you know, I didn't even know what that was, right? Yeah. So um, I went to seminary up in Chicago at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary and studied with Dr. Nancy Bedford, uh, one of the greatest gifts of my life. And really fell deeper in love with what it meant to do theology as a thing of enjoyment and a thing that I would call joyful resistance to the capitalizing of our world. And then, you know, I I think at that point, you know, I was not sold on the the theology that I was raised on in a, the Southern Baptist Church. I had already encountered feminism in college and I'd already encountered sort of LGBT studies in college and felt very curious about the ways that the theory that I was reading was really animating my own personal life. And you know, when I got to seminary, I, you know, fell in love with the thinkers that had really shaped uh, liberation theology and was was just reading so much and was just really in love with theology. But what I noticed during that time is I was more interested in the stories of Jesus than I was in like the ontological proofs of God. And that in that moment, I began to see in my own self the ways in which certainty was unraveling for me. But it was really when I when I did my clinical pastoral education residency, a year-long residency at a hospital. And I did it as a tool of discernment or as a practice of discernment before I decided to apply for a PhD work. It was really during that CPE residency that everything fell apart for me. Um, where I saw the devastation of beauty in things like suicide and drug overdose, where I saw the, the dismantling of certainty in failed attempts of chemo, um, the ways in which our broken healthcare system and the goodness of medicine was unable to be achieved with marginalized people and those who are living under conditions of homelessness. And it was really, it was really then that year in the mid 2000s where doubt became a seed that became a real orienting device for me. And I really sat with that for a while and, you know, was not attending church and didn't have anything to do with the institutional church, uh, but loved theology and loved the discourse and loved what I understood to be the process of theology, not so much making normative claims about belief, but that there was a story in theology that animated our reality. And that that story was something that still very much compelled me, despite the fact that I lived with such doubts. And so really that year was the year that for me, truth, beauty, and goodness broke down. And there was almost like, I want to say that that year really was like a fount of becoming for me. And this notion of collective liberation and really became, I think, the driving force that compels me to do theology today. Um, It's certainly not without complications. I mean, I spend a lot of time in churches preaching, right? So like there's an antithesis to to a lot of this. Um, I spent a lot of time in the places that I had spent 
several years rejecting and resisting. And there is a particular truth, beauty, and goodness in that, in that fold. Uh, it's a, it's a pleat, if you will, a pleat. But yeah, I mean, I, I have had, you know, about 15 years of holding divine doubt as a ways in which I understand life and the ways that precarity impacts it. And every day I'm compelled to be a theologian. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your, a little bit of your journey. Um, one of the phrases you used was doubt became an orienting device for you. So, so for many of, of us who on our journey in some way, shape or form have encountered embodied suffering like you did or pain or, or this newfound experience that sort of pushes you out from your prior you know, place that, that you were located in, at least ideologically, that process we, we realize later usually is a gift. And so it sounds like for you that this, this doubt as orienting device has become a catalyst for you. So what is it about the, the unknowing or the unsaying or the precarity, um, the ambiguousness of that, that sort of that spawns something within you to be so passionate still about your, your work? Yeah, you know, I think about Nicholas of of Cusa um, in this moment, the cloud of unknowing. Um, and Catherine Keller has spent a lot of time writing about Nicholas. Um, but I, I think about, uh, yeah, I think about the cloud of unknowing. I use a good term there, ambiguity. Um, you know, I I could talk about it from from the place of even how I came to understand myself as a non-binary trans person, right? That that there's a deep unknowing of 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 myself relative to a stable gender. And I feel very ambiguous to the gender binary. Well, I, I mean, I feel ambiguous and also I don't identify, right, with, with it. There's a disidentification with it. Right. Um, and, and I think that unknowing, you know, I, I think because of some of my personal experiences, uh, certainly during my CPE residency, um, that unknowing, I, I, I realized that, you know, trying to figure it all out and control it in a way that made sense was actually harming me. And, and, and that, that those are the seeds of bad theology in many respects. And I, you know, I, I feel like, it was during that time when I spoke with, you know, because when you're in the hospital, you encounter a lot of different people who, who have different religious orientations or spiritual practices. And it was the first time in my life where I had a chance to really sit and have presence of mind with people who are radically different from me. So Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Jains, you know, I was in the Chicagoland area. So there are lots of different people who live there. And, and for me, it was this moment of like, if we are to achieve harmony, or as my colleague says, birth more shalom in the world, 
then we we actually don't know. We actually don't have certainty. And that being human with one another is a process that is that is probably framed by some notion of unknowing and doubt. And so it was really it was really those conversations that I had with people where where the unknowing surfaced and made sense to me. And it seems like it's still, you hold it almost as a catalyst for your work today. So when I, when I hear you, I've heard you before talk about what you do and your work with faith matters network. And, um, as, as a theologian who, whose, whose coin phrase seems to be that you're pursuing collective liberation. Could you, could you unpack that for us a little bit and, and what you see your, your uh, task as, as, as a liberationist theologian? What is, what is collective liberation? How, how can we move in that direction? Looking yeah, so, yeah, so I think about collective liberation in this sense that if you are not free, I am not free. And your liberation is bound up in mine um, or with mine. And, you know, I think about... I think about the fact that, you know, white supremacy hurts us all. It doesn't, it just doesn't hurt people of color. It's also hurting white people. And so we need to eradicate white supremacy so that we can all have a notion of liberation and freedom. And, and I I think that, you know, we can also talk about economic supremacy, right? Like capitalism just doesn't hurt those who are most impacted by capitalism. Capitalism is also hurting the, the 1%. So I think about um, collective liberation as a particular quality of life. I think about collective liberation as part of the work of public theology. I think of collective liberation as a process by which we learn to be human with one another. I think about, you know, collective liberation as being deeply rooted in practices of bridging across lines of radical difference. Um, I think of collective liberation as a horizon toward which we should all be pointed to which toward which we all should be um, heading. Um, And I also think that collective liberation is not going to happen overnight. There are a lot of systems in place that thwart the effort of collective liberation. Um, I often talk about the church being the best and worst thing we have on earth. Um, And in many respects, the beloved community or the church um, are, are sites where we can begin to tease out our, our work of collective liberation. So, you know, I think about my work as translating theory to action, right? Um, so I do a sort of what I call activist theology and, you know, activist theology is holding the struggle to, um, to resist and to work against systems of oppression, um, holding that as primary while also building in a relationality of liberation and freedom um, with with all persons. Uh, And the metaphor I like to use is the bridge metaphor and that that my work as a theologian who is oriented toward, toward collective liberation is bridging across lines of radical difference. Yeah, it, sometimes when I reflect on our generation and the task of public theology today, 
Um, we are so migratory that it feels like ours might be a generation that is only midwifing something that's still going to be to come. I mean, it could be very Derridian in that sense of the, right. you know, that, that, would, that justice that calls us um, into becoming that is never actualized necessarily, but we're in process. And, but, but so as somebody who has, has, is making it their life's work to work for collective liberation in a time when, as you even mentioned earlier, we may not even see it achieved in, in our day. Like what sustains that work for you? Like what, what sort of rhythms do you have to put in place for self-care? What sort of processes do you, do you inhabit in order to sustain the work toward collective liberation, knowing that it's going to be, you know, a journey and a, and a battle? Yeah, this is, this is a great question. It's actually my favorite question. So I am trying to teach the movement and teach the church and teach the academy how to take a siesta every day. So a siesta every day is part of my self-care practice. And, you know, for at least an hour, I lay down, I rest my eyes. Oftentimes I fall asleep. You know, I put my phone on do not disturb and, and I siesta. and this is not about being lazy. This is not about putting off work, but this is about giving your heart, giving your mind, giving your body a moment of rest and to breathe, right? The other thing that I do is um, I have been on a journey of developing a breath practice and, and learning to breathe because I think I think a lot of times we are not breathing in our work. We're not grounded in our breath. And so learning to be grounded in my breath and learning to really breathe all the way through my body um, is part of my self-care practice. Um, I, I try to eat with the seasons. So like whatever is, whatever is part of the season I eat um, as a way to try to create more harmony with the earth. Right. So um trying to be grounded in my food practice, what are sustainable food practices that I can have um, and being committed to a sort of holistic approach to care. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I'm a coffee lover. And so I, I actually, you know, have one or two cups of coffee a day. I don't drink coffee all day because I, then I think it, the caffeine messes with, your circadian rhythm and then impacts your sleep. Um, so I limit myself to coffee, you know, two cups a day. Um, and then the other thing that I do is I don't drink coffee afternoon. I mean, I may have iced tea, but I, um, but I'm very intentional about what I'm putting in my body. Um, and then I try not to watch too much news because yep. it's, it's harming, right? It, it, it hurts. It hurts. Um, so the, yeah, those are the things that I do, and and I I try as much as I can to share meals with friends and colleagues and comrades because I think the more we can do in community and the more that we can do um, to build a togetherness in community, the the more robust our work can be. Yeah, last night um, we were doing this this sort of theopoetic community here in Santa Barbara called the Way Collective. Okay. Um, and uh, but what we talked about last night, part of our rhythm of life as a community is rest or Sabbathing. Yes. We talked about how when Brueggemann talks about Sabbath, he talks about Sabbath as resistance. 
and uh, yes. resisting the the way of mammon, which is not just money, it's commodification, it's you know productivity, it's capitalism in, in a sense. And uh, so it almost struck me as you were showing, like it's almost like siesta as resistance, you know? Yeah, the other thing I forgot to mention is I've just recently instituted a tech Sabbath where from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, I'm offline. And, uh, you know, I'm taking it really seriously about sort of um, what does it mean to unplug? Um, Walter Brueggemann's work, uh, Sabbath as Resistance, is good. And the Tech Sabbath stuff is really good. But, yeah, Siesta as Resistance, um, you know, I and – I, and I have to – I can't take credit for the Tech Sabbath. It's, ac- it's actually Casper Turcayo who up at Harvard Divinity who, who has modeled this to me over the past couple years. And, and yeah, there is really something in rest as resistance. You know, there's something, there's something on the, on the Instagrams called the nap ministry. I don't know if you're on Instagram, but I am, but I don't, I've never heard of that. Yeah. So the nap ministry, and it really speaks to me. It's all about being, um, you know, disengaging from capitalism and productivity, but yeah, those, those things, the, the rhythms of siesta, uh, resisting product productivity and and not being caught up in the psycho productivity of the academy, which I very much have fallen prey to and ha- have been very open and honest with people about sort of the push of publisher parish and you know to be legitimated as an academic and whatnot. Um, I have fallen prey to that, and so you know I am trying to be real transparent and honest about like, look, this shit is going to kill you. And if we are serious about the work of following the ways of Jesus, and if we are serious about the work of engaging hospitality, and if we are serious about the work of building a togetherness and community and fortifying our human relations, uh, then we have to resist the dominant forms of living. Yeah. One of the ways that, that we were even talking about it last night was that it's almost as if we have to cultivate a Sabbath center, that that those moments of unplugging during technology or siesta-ing each day are a call for us to come back to to who we to our truth, really, to who we yeah. are, to, to prioritize yeah. the way of of rest and liberation over the way of anxiety and, and commodification and um and and gaining, you know, and so. Yeah. Uh, I hope my hope is that our generation is also moving in the direction of resisting much of the flow of of technology. I, I think I, we were talking about statistics last night, and like eighty sw- uh, eighty unlocks a day on your iPhone is average. I think it's twenty oh, wow. twenty six hundred swipes a day. Um, wow! You know, swiping, pushing a button. So, um, and we think about that activity as normative these days, you know, and so right. How can we cultivate that Sabbath center as activists, as theologians, as practitioners? Um, and how can that sort of become our lens or inform our our work, I think, is is, is so such a gift um, that we need to keep inviting people into. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Hmm. So tell me um, about your work with Faith Matters Network. Yeah, so I, I, um, I'm actually today starts my six month sabbatical, I should say. Wow. Um, Congrats. uh, Thank you. To, uh, I'm calling it my fallow season to really rest, restore, renew, and repair um, after a three years 
of being on the road full-time speaking. Uh, but my work there, I work with uh, Jen Bailey, Reverend Jen Bailey, and Mickey Scott Bay Jones, the Justice Doula, and uh, you know, we my my work there is in public theology and curating public theology programs, um, and and my work with Jen and Mickey has been one of the most profound things that I've done. Uh, working with two black women, they. They have my utmost respect, and it's it's a real joy to to be with them. Um, and you know, our work there is is to to try to build pipelines of leadership for marginalized people, um, for those who have um, most, you know, those who have been most impacted by religious violence and whatnot. Um, and so we do our two verticals are public theology and healing justice, and our our sort of horizontal theme is is moral imagination. Wow! Back to to your work on bridging. Um, you know that's that's so crucial. And you know something I, I try to bring up when I'm talking with with activists like yourself and theologians is um, the colonization of our region here locally in Santa Barbara. I you know I've looked into the history of that and. Um, what what in your mind do, does bridging between maybe Anglo and Latinx communities look like? Because that's the two predominant um, communities here in our area, and there's there's a sordid history um, and, yeah. and a underbelly of um, of colonization here that that is that goes deep into the the history of our city. But but for you and your experience, how have you worked in bridging um, not just Latinx and Anglo? But, but just in general, what, what would your, your call to action be and, or, or your methods for that? I mean, I, I think about the ways, the fact that we don't know how to listen to people. Um, and so, I, you know, I, when I think about bridging, I think about we need to engage in the radical act of listening. And when we do that we we engage in a process of vulnerability and empathy. Um, and when we're able to do that, we learn to be human with one another. And, you know, wounded people wound people, right? So we we have to figure out a way to be engaged in the process of listening and not be so ready to talk. I mean, you know, Latinx people um, have been colonized by, by white America. Um, and, you know, for certainly in, in, you know, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, you know, the, the Southwest, including California. Um, there is a whole sort of deep wounding of, the border cross cross them right so figuring out the way to bridge you know in your context is really learning the stories of hurt learning the stories of woundedness and being able to sit in the rupture of that woundedness and and really learning what is the path of hospitality and generativity and connection in the midst of such a deep, deep wound or deep rupture. Yeah. 
that's a beautiful call. We, I mean, not only do we have that, the, the sort of um, historic, historically Mexican population that's here, but also the Chumash experienced a lot of the same, um, our local indigenous tribe here experienced a lot of the same uh, colonizing um, and actually even in a more uh, devastating manner in terms of death. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that we are trying to, I think the first step for us has been to, to even know the story because I've only been here for a couple of years, but the people who I've met who are part of our community who have lived here for 20, 30, 40, 50 years don't know the story. Right. Um, that's, that's a problem. And so, um, you know, those, those ways of bridging, I, I think are going to be a path for our future if we want to achieve collective liberation. So. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Tell me about uh, the book you're writing. Yes. So I'm working on a book for Fortress Press. It's called Activist Theology, and it's a combination of narrative and poetry. And the poetry is written by Rebel, uh, a Ferguson-based activist. And it's, it's, I think it's turning out lovely. I'm working on rewrites and revisions and whatnot, which is a whole process in and of itself. But it's a, it's a book that is sort of, it's it's a it's a book of deep translation from theory to action and it's a book it's a book that i have been given birth to for almost 3 years and and it's coming together i i think i think it's going to be lovely um and the narrative you know i'm i'm not i'm not one to i i'm someone who deals with high theory is what i should say and so i'm not one to to lead with story necessarily. Uh, but this book is leading with narrative, with personal narrative, um, that, that, if you, that if you read closely, you can read the theory in what I'm saying, but there's, it's, not, it's, not, it's framed by theory, but it's not written in theory. Um, so I'm super excited about that, and um, I'm hoping it will be out next year or something. Um, and I think the poetry is going to be really lovely, uh, you know, written by a, a black womanist activist, um, who is a graduate of Eden Theological Seminary and is just, it, the poetry is just really lovely. Um, so yeah, super excited about shaping activist theology through narrative, through prose and poetry and, and really trying to mobilize a new conversation in the field of, of theology and ethics around connecting the dots between theory and action. Mm, sounds like there's some theopoetics in there. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, you could say that the, you could say that the thing is a project in theopoetics in and right. of itself. Right. And would you define theopoetics any specific way for your own self? Or do you, do you even see yourself as embracing a theopoetics in terms of your, your methodology or how would you talk about that? I have been caught up in, Theopoetics for several years, and I very much think about the work that I do as theopoetics. Um, I call myself a word artist or a poet of reason, um, and I think that's theopoetics in many respects. Um, but you know, if I were to define theopoetics, I would say it's it's a discourse that is grounded in a deep embodiment of word and action. 
and beauty or aesthetic. Mm, love that. Yeah, the what you made me think of when you when you said that was this idea. Sometimes I think of the the sort of prologue of, of John's gospel that says from word to flesh to dwelling among as a paradigm yeah. or, or a movement of poetics toward embodiment and toward yeah. toward community and toward bridging. And so yeah. um, I love that framing as as a way to think about um, what we're doing. So what for you um, would you say that that it's the job of everyone who is, is a person of faith to be an activist or is there sort of everyday activism that you would advocate for in, in what you're writing and, and doing or how would you talk about the call to activism for for the layperson maybe? Well, I mean I think that I think I think we're I think we're all called to live out our faith in action. I think we're all called to live out both faith and works. I think we're all called to live, to live the questions in a deep way. Um, and that might be on the street protesting or on the steps of the Capitol protesting or greeting someone at Planned Parenthood and providing hospitality. Or that actually might mean cooking a meal for someone. So, you know, everyday activism, it, it, really, it really depends, right, on, on where your gifts are, uh, where you're called to be. Uh, but I do think there's an everyday activism, whether it's resisting um, the commodification of, of whatever, or if it just is turning off the television and, and resisting the 24-hour news cycle. Um, or, you know, the everyday activism could be finding, finding your, your local farmer's market and supporting sustainable produce or sustainable food, right? Um, there, I think there is an everyday activism, and I think activism is not just what gets televised or not just what the big protest rallies are. Uh, but, you know, as, as my teacher, Dr. Nancy Bedford, um, says in talking about discernment that, you know, making little moves against destructiveness is everyday activism. Micro actions. Yes. Yes. That's wonderful. Um, so where can we keep up with you? Where can we follow along with what you're doing? Where can people connect with you? Yeah. So, you know, my website is irobin.com, the letter I R O B Y N. Um, I'm on Instagram as irobin and on Twitter as iRobin and really active on both Twitter and, and Instagram. Uh, my Facebook page is, um, you know, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa, an activist theologian. So I post stuff there to get people thinking and get people into the conversation. Great. Well, I wanted to thank you also just for being here and for your generosity and your authenticity and your work. It's, it's so courageous and beautiful. So thanks for, for being a part of the podcast and for the conversation. Thanks so much, Tim. I appreciate it. Take care, Robin. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics Podcast. If you like what you heard, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and give us a rating. You can also keep up with us on social media at at TheopoeticsCast or tweet at me at at TDBurnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsors, ARC, at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone.